0: about what we're doing for the rest of the summer. So essentially, uh, we are trying to finish uh, Wayne Grudem's book on doctrine, which we started long ago and maybe more than two years ago, and we would like to finish that. And the last section of that book that we have not gotten to is the eschatology section, which is just a fancy way of saying the last things or the end times. and. We thought we might kind of hit two birds with one stone. What one bird is we would like to finish the eschatology section. Another thing is we would just like to familiarize ourselves with the book of Revelation, because it's a a book that just, at least in our church's life, we haven't spent a lot of time in Revelation since we started our church, and it's a book that we're always kind of curious about and we kind of want to know more about how to interpret it. And so, we're going to be camped out largely in Revelation for the rest of the summer, not only Revelation, we will also look at other passages in both the Old and New Testament to look at uh, final judgment and the new heavens and new earth and things like that. But we do want to spend particular focus on Revelation. Let me say what we are not doing. We are not going to be giving a verse-by-verse Walkthrough of the whole book of Revelation this summer. So we're we're going to be we're going to be zeroing in on certain key texts that we think uh, illuminate certain parts of the book, and we're going to be giving overviews of certain parts of it. But we are not going to walk verse by verse through uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to be using this as kind of a, a jumping uh, jumping off place to answer some important questions. Today, so if I just before we pray, the book of Revelation is is. Really, if, you've got to make some big decisions about what we call hermeneutics, how you interpret the Bible. You've got to make some big interpretive decisions about Revelation that will kind of send you down one of several paths. And these, these several paths, they're not heretical paths, right? I mean, we, we can be friends and agree to disagree on some of these things. This is not like a, something we divide over in our faith or we, you know, we send people out of the church because they have a different view on Revelation. That would be crazy. Uh, I'm sure there are people who do that, but that's not what we're going to do. Uh, but you've got to make some basic interpretive decisions about the fundamental book and what this thing is trying to do, because it is obviously different from reading Romans or reading the Gospel of John or reading Matthew or Acts. It's just, we all know immediately it's a different kind of literature, a different kind of genre, and so how are we to interpret it? And so, I would say the two, two of the big questions we're going to be dealing with for at least the next two Sundays, maybe the next three Sundays, is going to be trying to answer these two massive questions. One is… We all know that parts of Revelation are literal, like there were literally seven churches that the book was written to, like Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia. Those are literal. We also know that the book has symbols, like the beast coming up out of the sea. I hope you don't think that that's literal, okay? So we all know that there's literal and there's symbolic in Revelation. That's, I think everybody agrees on that. The question is, is Revelation fundamentally symbolic with some literal, or is it fundamentally literal with some symbolic uh, things in it? That's going to be a big part of it. We're, I'm just going to go ahead and give the spoiler alert at the very beginning. We're going to be arguing against what most Southern Baptists probably have taught in the last century. Uh, not what people have taught throughout church history, but what, what people have taught recently in Southern Baptist life, which is Southern Baptists have typically taken Revelation very literally and they've typically also seen it as in direct chronological order. So that if you, if you get to chapter 6 and you go all the way to the end of Revelation, most Southern Baptists that I'm aware of would take it as direct chronological, literal future history of seven years of tribulation, followed by a millennium, followed by the new creation. So, a very literal, very chronological approach to the book. We're going to be taking a very symbolic approach to the book, and we are not going to believe, we're, we're going to argue that it is not chronological, but that it is something called recapitulatory or recursive, that you're actually seeing all of church history from different angles and vantage points. It's kind of like if you watch a football game and there's a close play on the field, don't we watch it from about 17 different angles, the same play? Like how far did the ball get? Did it cross the line? Was the guy's knee down before it ha- Like, So we, we see an angle from here, an angle from here. Well, Revelation is giving us different snapshots or camera angles on, we believe, the church age, which goes from Christ's ascension all the way until His second coming and beyond. So that's, those, are the, those are the big questions you've got to answer for yourself. And. Um, then you can really start to make headway, I think, with what to do with the heart… the, the midsection, the, the, the main part of Revelation. So, with all that uh, said, uh, Greg, could you pray for us, and then we will… <laughs> we will with fear and trembling, we will jump in.
1: Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your goodness to us. We thank You for the gift of Your Word. God, we know some parts uh, tend to be easier to understand, some parts more difficult, not because they are themselves impossible to understand, it's just we're not as familiar with with it. And Revelation, Lord, we know is one of those books, and God, we, we do come with, with fear and trembling, Lord, hopefully with uh, a lot of humility and grace, um, but Lord, also we want to have firm conviction, uh, Lord, because... Your word is meant to be understood. It's meant to be understood a certain way. And I pray, Lord, that as we do this overview over the next several weeks, God, that you will help um, Fred and Mark and myself to uh, just be very clear, help us be able to explain uh, well the things that uh, we want to communicate uh, to these folks here. Um, And, Lord, I pray that we would all leave this time with a better understanding of your word, um, not just of revelation, but of the unity of scripture and um, and how it all points us to the hope that we have in the lord jesus and so Father, please just give us grace for these next few moments and we ask this in jesus name amen
0: amen so I mean you don 't have to take notes but if you're if you're jotting some stuff down you might you might want to jot down just a few terms here uh, as different approaches to the book of revelation and and you can try your best to spell some of these words, but number one is the preterist view, preterist, p-r-e-t-e-r-i-s-t, preterist view. Number two is the historicist view. Number three is the futurist view. And number four is the idealist view, and we'll explain that in a second. So, preterist, historist, I think I'm saying that right? Excuse me, historicist view. Yes. Thank you, thank you futurist view, and, and the idealist view. Greg, would you mind t- explaining the preterist position, uh, kind of a brief uh, summary of that?
1: Yes. Uh, okay. Preterist simply means it was referring to something that has passed. Um, and the preterist view looks at the book of Revelation largely has already… having already taken place, uh, starting, what, with chapter 4 all the way to the end… Um, it's already done. It was for the the first century uh, primarily for the Jews Um, and so this book or this view in its strictest sense sometimes comes close to even denying the second coming as a future event. Um, Everything is already passed. Um, There's what are called partial preterists Mm -hmm. who will see Revelation mostly as having been fulfilled but with just a few key things like the return of Christ and the eternal kingdom—that's still future. Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, held to a position like that. Uh, we'll forgive him uh, for being wrong um, on that one. Um, he sees it right in glory now. Um, but so the preterist view is is one of those that is almost entirely rejected by almost everybody now. Um, it 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 like I said, a partial preterist. Um, it, it, they haven't committed heresy, um, but we have some serious reservations about that. We will deal more with the, pre- the partial preterist view when we talk about the millennium and postmillennialism, mm-hmm. because that's where it's really expressed um, the clearest. Um, but the preterist view, again, it's one we're, we're going to very firmly reject as a, even a viable option. Um, and one of the reasons why is it claims the book of Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, I I think the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Most of your study Bibles, um, whether ESV, MacArthur, whatever, is going to make a clear case that Revelation was written in the 90s A.D., well after the fall of Jerusalem. Um, But they believe it was a really early, early book, and so they can make their case, well, if it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, then all the stuff we see came, you know, was fulfilled as Rome destroyed, you know, Jerusalem and the temple... And it's just a position that just does not line up with the text. They have to do some interesting stretches here and there to try to reinterpret some things, and we just don't accept the preterist view.
0: Yes, and just to give an example, um, Doug Wilson, who's a guy that we would sometimes passionately agree with, sometimes passionately disagree with, Doug (laughs) Wilson has written a whole commentary on Revelation called When the Man Comes Around, which I have read a good chunk of. He takes this view. He's a partial Mm -hmm. preterist. He thinks that, if, if, if you want to just jot down again, Revelation 6 to 18 has already happened. That's that view. So, 6 to 18, all the seals, trumpets, and bowls of wrath being poured out, that's all referring, he would argue, to uh, God's judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So, the trumpets, uh, the the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all the wrath of God being poured out on the earth is not referring to the final return of Christ and His judgment when He returns. It's referring to Christ returning in 70 A.D. to destroy Jerusalem. Having read a good portion of Doug Wilson's book, he's a great writer, but man, I am not convinced at all that he's right. I just… I think this is one of the. I mean, the next view I think is actually worse, but this view I think is very hard to hold to. Not many people do hold to it, but if you're post-millennial, you basically have to be a partial preterist. Those yeah, two, those you two do. are linked together. So if you're if you're post-millennial, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. That means most of Revelation has already happened in that position, and I uh, I'm just not persuaded by that position. The historicist view. Is that how you
2: say it?
1: Yeah, the historicist view.
2: Uh, Papa Fred, you want to give us a little sure. taste of the historicist view? Um, <clears throat> now the historicist. Historic, Say that now letter. I don't feel so bad. It's a hard <laughs> Histori- word to say. <laughs> historicist. Historicist. View is that uh, all the seals, bowls, trumpets paint a picture of, of the successive ages in the church. Uh, I'll stop right there. The problem with this is th- it depends on, depends on the lens of the person that's interpreting at the time what's going on in the world. So you might you might change that. Uh, they see everything as, again, chronological. Th- these events as chronologically happen, uh, and we see them uh, more symbolically. Uh, Pop,
0: uh, just real quick, Papa, uh, with… if you know chapters… so, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are the seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches. Remember Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Laodicea. I don't remember them all, but you've got those seven churches. The idea is that those churches, in chronological order, are meant to symbolize eras of church history. So, it's like you have the Ephesian era of church history, you have the Laodicean era of church history, and you're supposed to step back over 2,000 years and see the Ephesian era, which lasted for however many hundreds of years, and, you know, this is when we lost our first love here, and this is when we were… You know, and th- this was held in the Middle Ages. This view, more than the Preterist view, has been almost 100 percent abandoned. I don't know any credible person today, a single person who holds this view today. So I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. But the historicist view—that's a that's hard word to they say. can't pronounce. It. Hey, you got <laughs> that's it. That's right. That's right. That, that view is the idea that the seven churches represent seven eras in church history. The, the, there's all kinds of problems with that. And um, again, if you want to know more about that, we can talk about that later. But for the sake of time. Almost no one holds that view. We'll we'll move to the futurist view. Now, this one is extraordinarily popular, the futurist view. And this usually goes with a premillennial view of the future. Greg, give us a little overview of the future uh, view.
1: Okay. So, the futurist view, um, there's a couple of varieties of this that we'll talk more about later, but it is um, technically premillennial, meaning um, at the very least, the thousand years that we all know about at Revelation 20 is a, a future event. It's not something that's now... Um, And most people in the Futurist camp will look at starting in chapter 4 all the way up through chapter 19. That is mostly future. I mean chapter 4 and 5 maybe not so much uh, with elements of all of it, but after chapter 5, 6 through 19 that's mostly in the future. It has not happened yet. It's not part of our current experience. Um, It's referring to either the, the specific seven years um, of Daniel's, you know, Daniel seven that we talked about, that's when that's going to be, um, or it, it's events that lead into that, but it's not where we are now. Um, so the kind of the two main differences uh, that you're going to find in the futurist camp um, are what you would call a post-tribulation view and a pre-tribulation view. What I mean is, You know, we talked about the rapture and various things like that. If you're a a dispensationalist, you're going to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that the church is going to be removed uh, before the the final seven years, before this tribulation kicks into gear. And so from the dispensationalist perspective, they will see um, after chapter three, the church is no longer in view, okay? Um, We get the heavenly scenes with the Father and with the Son, and then as the seals are opened. It's all about that seven-year, final seven-year period, the final 70th week of Daniel's 77s. And uh, 6 through 19 deals with that 70th week, That's, that seven years. So it's literally seven years when you start chapter 6 to the end of chapter 19 is a seven-year period. That's the dispensational view when it's focused on Israel. It's focused on God finishing that week in Daniel, pouring out his judgments wrath on the earth, um, the Another premillennial view that is not a dispensational view may or may not see things similarly, but it says there's no, the church is present during all of these judgments. The church is on earth witnessing, suffering, testifying, um, and looking forward to chapter 19 when Jesus comes back in power and glory. We all look forward to that. Thankfully, that's our, our unifying thing. Jesus is coming back physically, literally, bodily. There's no, no doubt about that. But kind of how you get there is a little different.
0: And just, uh, if you were not here in November, December, we did, I think, four weeks on the the rapture, and we argued for a post-tribulation, that Jesus just comes back one time after the time of tribulation. If you're curious and you were not here for that, I would encourage you to go back on the podcast or the YouTube channel and find Mm -hmm. that in November, December. We have several hours of content trying to argue for that position, but we won't be going over that as much right now. Let me get to the fourth view here. So the fourth view, we just called it the idealist view. Let me give you the full name for it, which is a mouthful, but I think this is the best way to say it. This is the view that we're going to be arguing for. You ready for a mouthful? The eclectic, redemptive, historical, idealist view. The eclectic, redemptive, historical, idealist view. Now let me try to explain what all that means. And this is the view that G.K. Beale and others have argued for, Tom Schreiner. A lot of people have argued for this in a very uh, scholarly way. Here's what we mean first by eclectic. Eclectic is we respect that there are aspects of these other views that have certain details correct. Mm. So, for instance, are there some aspects of Revelation of things that have already happened in the past? Yes, absolutely. Like the seven churches are already gone, right? Th- those churches were there and gone. So, we, we, we do believe certain parts of Revelation are preterist in the sense that they come before now. They, they, they already happened a long time ago. We also agree with the historicist view, not really, but kind of in the sense that it, we believe that Revelation applies to all of church history. We don't agree with how they apply it, but we do agree that Revelation is… is relevant for all stages of church history, and we of course agree with the futurist view that the last chapters of Revelation are in the future. Of course, Jesus is coming back physically in the future, like He does in chapter 19. Of course, Jesus is going to conquer His enemies like He does in 19 and 20, in the future. Of course, there will be a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, which is in the future, in Revelation 21 and 22. So, we have no question that there are… The latter chapters of Revelation are definitely future-oriented. So, we agree with aspects. This is why we say eclectic right? You know, eclectic music brings together all different genres in one place. We're eclectic. We believe certain things in Revelation are early history. Some of them relate to all church history. Some of them are future from now. But we think the redemptive historic idealist view is the best because we believe that the symbolism in Revelation is not just referring… I mean, I feel like we're going to get lost so easily. Let me just stop. So when I say symbolism, I'm talking chapters six to say… Nineteen, eighteen—the the, 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 the heart of the book, 6 to 19, when the seals, trumpets, and bowls are poured out and God's judgment comes. We are arguing that those do not take place during a seven-year tribulation at the end of history after the secret rapture of the church and before the visible public coming of Jesus. Okay, that's what most Southern Baptists would teach. I mean, that's an extremely pro- popular view today. We're arguing against that view. We're arguing that most of chapters 6 to, say, 18… So, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, and all around there, we, we argue that that is referring symbolically to what is true throughout the entire church age, but that the, the, the trials and persecution is heightened and intensified at the final… right before the final return of Christ. So, we, we believe that the seals, trumpets, and bowls refer to all of church history, but that they are emphasizing the heightening and intensity of trials right before Christ returns visibly at the very end. This, w- this means controversially that the church is on earth through the entire tribulation period. That's what we argued in our post-tribulation rapture series a few months ago. So, so we believe the church is on earth through all the seals, trumpets, and bowls. We are here for the, for the, for, for those things. And uh, there's a sense in which those things are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church is being persecuted. We're called to be faithful in persecution, but those things will intensify as we, as we go forward. Um, so, our two big things we've got to argue for. Number one. We've got to argue that there's a lot more symbolism in revelation than you may have grown up thinking that is hard that's that's a paradigm shift and, and, and if, if we've grown up with one way of interpreting revelation where it's very literal and chronological it's the seven years of tribulation when when you hear a different view it may sound at first like whoa what are you this is so different of a but i i want to i want to ask you to give us some your patience if you're if you're not convinced right away give us your patience and let, let us have a few weeks here of your time and see if you can become more convinced over time Number two, we've got to again argue that Revelation is not taking place in chronological order but that we're cycling through church history more than once, actually a whole number of times. And I'll just give a little sneak preview. One of the strong… I think that position is very strong, that Revelation is recapitulatory and not chronological. The reason I say that is because the world ends more than once in Revelation. How many times can the earth and sky flee away? That can happen once. Well, it happens multi- happens in chapter 6, happens in chapter 16 and 17, happens in chapter 19, chapter 20. How many times does the world come to an end? Well, I think you're seeing that we, we go all the way to the end of history, and then what? We start back over. So the seals take us all the way to the final judgment in ch- chapter 6, and then the trumpets start over, and they take us all the way to the final judgment later in the book. And then the bowls start over and take us all the way to the final judgment, and they're giving us different aspects of the time in between, if that, if that makes sense. So let, let me deal with an objection here. We would all agree that Liberal Bible teachers tend to take the Bible symbolically when they should not, like the virgin birth. If someone says the virgin birth is symbolic language, we would all say, that's liberalism, that's not Bible-believing, and we want you out of here. Like, don't teach that. That's bad stuff. So it could sound like we are reading the Bible liberally because we're not taking Revelation literally. You see what I'm saying? So here's the question you've got to answer. The question is, we want, to, we want to take the Bible literally when it's meant to be taken literally, and we want to take it symbolically when it intends to be taken symbolically. Now, we all know that there, is di- there are different genres in the Bible. When we are reading the flood of Noah in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, we are reading history. And to take it symbolically is to do injustice to the Bible because it is presented as literal history, and we must believe it is a true flood that, that encompassed the earth. If we're reading poetry, it's a little different, right? If we're reading apocalyptic literature, which is like the second half of Daniel with all the beasts and all the visions, we don't take those literally. We take them highly. Nebuchadnezzar's statue with gold, silver, bronze, and uh, clay and uh, what was the other thing? Iron. You don't take that literally. It's not, it's not about a statue. It's about f- future kingdoms. And so we need to know, first of all, is Revelation meant to be read as symbolic or literal? And Greg, could you hop into the f- opening paragraph of the book yeah, and talk
1: yeah, about that? I want to say one more thing. Um, because that's often been a charge against the position that we're going to be arguing for is you're just arguing like the liberals do. When liberals talk about symbolism, they're dehistoricizing the text. They're saying it's no longer referring to reality, okay? That's not what we mean by symbolic. Mm -hmm. When When we say symbolic, God is communicating his truth in a particular medium, which is graphic symbolism, okay? It's referring to real history, that we are in and that we all face. We're not detaching it from real history when we say symbolic. That's what the liberals do. That's why I like with the resurrection. Well, it's gotta be a symbolic resurrection because if it was real history, then it would totally undermine what the liberals are denying. Um, No, when we mean symbolic, it's the medium that God is using to communicate his truth, all right? And like you said, the genre aspect plays a big part. Think of the Song of Solomon when he starts to describe, when um, Solomon describes um, the Shulamite. Like you can, if, if you see, maybe you've seen on Facebook or Instagram, <laughs> like somebody, like somebody did like a literal drawing of the description of the Shulamite, Solomon's bride and it is a horrific looking <laughs> freaky person it's it's not like it's some science fiction creature that's not even real if you take it literally but we don't take solomon to be literally saying like you know she's got you know a sheep for her teeth and stuff like he's he's using an image to communicate something that's about literal, that's real. literal that's literal yes and so when we say symbolism don't think detached from reality don't think absent from history no we're dealing with real life it's just real life being talked about and communicated in a way that's not as straightforward as we might otherwise think. So we well, want to read. Go ahead.
2: Well, just a good example. Uh, I think you mentioned Daniel. Daniel's a good was a good intro for me because I studied Daniel differently than I had before, and there's a lot of the same. This apocalyptic. There's a lot of uh, visions, a lot of symbolism, the Nebuchadnezzar statue. They represented real empires, but this was a, a symbolic, mm-hmm. symbolic of those empires. Uh, actually, Daniel picked up from the time of the captivity all the way to the end of the world. And, and, and so uh, he used and God used symbolism to reveal what was gonna happen to Daniel and that God was sovereign and God was in control and it was all, all going to work out in the end. And before you get to the first verse, just…
0: let me give you one, like, really intense illustration. So later in Revelation, you have a drunk prostitute, a woman, who's on the back of this beast, right, with multiple heads, and she's drunk with the blood of the saints, and she's associated with seven hills. Now, obviously that's not literal, right, Can we all agree that's symbolism why in the world would God choose to describe whatever that is with that language? Well, she represents… she's connected to the Roman Empire in some way because the seven hills represents Rome, the city founded on seven hills. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints on the back of a beast, and she's dressed with gold and pearls and beautiful clothing. You you understand what… symbolism is kind of like a graphic novel, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. It's meant to give us imagination. It's it's meant to spark our imagination to allow what looks beautiful on the outside… Rome and all its power and glory. And it's meant to strip away the facade of Rome's apparent beauty and power and sophistication and its nobility and show you the moral truth of what's actually behind Rome. And it's like a drunk prostitute on the back of a beast, drunk with the blood of the saints, who's acting horrifically. J- God is inspiring John to give us vivid images to tear the smoke screen off Hollywood to say, it looks so beautiful. It looks so incredible. Tear the screen off and look behind it. The morality is ugly. It's hideous. It's like a woman drunk with blood on the back of a beast." So, so so it's… It, the symbolism is meant to electrify our imagination, to show us what's really true behind what we see with our eyes in the world around us. Does that make sense? That's the way it works in Daniel, It's also the way it works here in Revelation.
1: How far do you want me to read?
0: Maybe just the first uh, paragraph there, the first, first, paragraph, first three one, verses.
1: Three, okay. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near."
0: Okay, so when we read Revelation, we're tempted to interpret Revelation with one of two things in our hand. A lot of people today read Revelation and the thing that they hold in their hand, we don't have these anymore, newspaper, okay? Does anyone read a physical newspaper? Because it's awesome if you do. But uh, it, maybe it's online now. We're scrolling through the news. But it, we're tempted to read Revelation with a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And so we end up looking, okay, what's going on in the Middle East right now? It, back at you know, one point, it was like Saddam Hussein is trying to build this thing and like where, where, uh, where Babylon used to be. So like, is he the fulfillment of this? So we're reading, we're always reading about helicopter attacks. So that must be the stingers in the tails of these <laughs> of these locusts that look like helicopters. So we're, we're, we're reading the, the Revelation with the newspaper in our hand. And we're interpreting it primarily with modern Day Middle East news. That's so tempting. And listen, if you write books like that, they sell hundreds of thousands of copies, books like the Harbinger and stuff, that are absolutely not faithful to the Bible, but man, they sound like they're explaining from the Bible modern day news, and so it's really electrifying and people get all excited about it. And those are the kinds of books that will burn up on the last day. They'll just disintegrate on the last day because they're not what Revelation's about at all. What you read Revelation with is not the latest article from CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. What you read uh, Revelation with is with your Old Testament open. Revelation doesn't quote the Old Testament much directly. It alludes to and uses the language of the Old Testament more than any book in the Bible. Revelation references and alludes to Old Testament, the Old Testament more frequently than there are verses in Revelation. There are many verses in Revelation that will allude to the the Old Testament three times in one verse. That's astonishing. So if we're reading MSNBC and Fox News with Revelation, we're not doing this the right way. We need to be reading Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Genesis and Exodus and all over the place. We need to have our Old Testament at the ready because, and we need to have cross-references in your Bible. You can look things up because even from the very first verse of Revelation, he's not signaling Middle Eastern politics today. He's signaling Daniel chapter 2 from the opening verse of of Revelation. He's saying, hey, go back to Daniel 2.
1: You want to take a shot at the Daniel 2 connection? I would love to. Um, look at. Before we turn there, look again at verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known. Okay? The, the word in Greek is semino. It's, um, it's, a, it's a derivative of that word. And it refers to communicating something, signifying something by symbols. Okay? That's, that's the word. And again, so rooted in the Old Testament is this. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, let's look at verses 28 through 30. Now remember back in Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream um, and he can't interpret it. Daniel is given the interpretation. And so we pick, up, um, we pick up in verse 28 as Daniel is, actually I'll start reading verse 27 and listen to this. And the connection here is not going to be from the Hebrew, but from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It says, Daniel answered the king, verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And look at the word, the phrase, he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. Um, and he says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed, not because of any wisdom that I have, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. And you may know the thoughts of your mind. That phrase made known is the exact same root word as what we have in Revelation one. And it means to signify or communicate by symbols. And so what God is saying through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar is this, yes, God is speaking to you king, but he's speaking in a very specific type of way. He's revealing the future to you through this symbolism of these coming kingdoms. Again, referring to real history, real kingdoms populated by real people, but he's talking about those kingdoms in a very unique way. Not just straightforward, well, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, this is gonna be Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece. He's saying, he pictures, this is the symbolism, okay? The head of gold, then the silver, then the bronze, and then the other. Like, and so he's talking about real history just in a very vivid way that grabs hold of you um, that will actually help you remember it better than if He just gave you straightforward information.
0: Let me just build off that. Look at verse 28 again of Daniel 2. You see here it says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Does everybody see that? Now I've, I've got the Greek of Daniel 2 right here, okay? So I, I'm not making this up. The word revealed is the word revelation. It's the word apocalyptone. It's where we get the word apoc- apocalypse, right? Apo- the, the Greek word in revelation is apocalypse. This is the word apocalyptone. It's the same root word. So You've got the the same word, revealing, is the same word from Revelation 1, the word for made known is the same word from Revelation 1, and the idea of what must take place soon and what must take place, these are extraordinarily similar Greek Mm -hmm. phrases. You have three or four different things that are virtually identical between Daniel 2.28 and Revelation 1.1. Now listen, the only time those three or four Greek phrases appear in the entire Greek Old Testament and Greek New Testament is Revelation 1.1 and Daniel 2. Now, you know what that means? That means John is telling us something when he writes Revelation many centuries later. He's saying from the opening verse of Revelation, you need to have Daniel open and ready as the interpretive grid that helps you understand what I'm about to write because he gives us three allusions to Daniel. Apocalypse, make known, must soon take place. All take place at the beginning of Daniel, I mean, the beginning of Revelation and Daniel 2.28 and following. And what, like Greg just said this, what is the kind of thing that's being signified in Daniel 2? a symbolic vision of the future. That should be a clue from the very start that John is going to be using… John's going to give us a, an apocalypsis, a symbolic image of the future. And so, just like Daniel 2 is all symbolic with the statue of four different golds and metals about the future and the… the stone cut without hands, which is Jesus knocking the thing over and becoming a mountain that takes over the world, that's all the future all the way to the return of Christ. Similarly, Revelation is picking up on that idea and saying, I'm about to give you symbolic language." like Daniel, about the future, and I think that's a strong connecting point between the two books. So, let's jump back to Revelation uh, chapter uh, 1 there. And just to start giving you just some samples of the kinds of symbolism I'm talking about that… they're just everywhere in the book. Look with me at… look with me at verse 4 of of Revelation 1, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth." Now do you see here? You've got the Father referenced, Him who was and is and is to come. You've got the Son referenced, Jesus Christ, and then you've got the seven spirits who are before His throne. Most commentators agree, and this this, this phrase occurs three times in Revelation, the seven spirits of God. Almost everybody agrees, this is the Holy Spirit. But there's only one Holy Spirit. Why are we calling the Holy Spirit seven spirits before the throne? The seven spirits of God. God only has one spirit. Why are there seven? This is not literal. The number seven is symbolic. It's the number of completion based on the creation week. When God did seven days, it was completely finished, right? It was over. We're resting. So it's a a number of completion. When God wants to use revelation symbolism, when He wants to speak about the fullness of the Spirit, He doesn't say, like Paul in Colossians would say something like the fullness of the Spirit for his way. But in, in, in apocalyptic literature, you don't say fullness of the Spirit. You say the seven spirits of God. It's a way of symbolically speaking of the fullness of the Spirit. Now, I'm just telling you. Stuff like this is going to happen through the entire book of Revelation, where if we take it literally, we fall into false teaching because <laughs> there aren't seven spirits, there's one. But, but if we take it symbolically, we understand what's being meant. And, and the, the numbers that are most often symbolic in the book, are you ready? The number four, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12, and multiples of those numbers. And this is going to be influential when we interpret the 144,000 later, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Those are all symbolic numbers right? Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, twelve times twelve. This is the whole, all the people of God, times a thousand, which is a number for, again, fullness and completion. 144,000, are we talking about literally 144,000 Jewish people, or are we talking about the true Israel of God, the church of God, all of God's people throughout all the ages, twelve times twelve times a thousand, both God's Old and New Testament people, all of them true in God. So these are the kinds of things that we're going to be discussing as we, as we move forward. Um, l- look with me here in the same chapter, 116. He sees a vision of Jesus, and it says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Does Jesus literally have a gigantic sword sticking out of his mouth? No. This is symbolic for the power of his word. His word is like a two-edged sword, so in in apocalyptic literature, you have a sword sticking out of your mouth as symbolism for the power of the word of Jesus, his authoritative power. Uh, Somebody, uh, Greg, you want to pick up?
1: Well, again, paying attention to um, like the number seven, um, you see it, the fact in verse four, seven churches, you've got uh, seven spirits. Uh, you look at the fact um, in chapter one, um, you've got seven lampstands mm. um, and, and all that. It's seven stars. And, and so you see the, the importance of the number seven. Like, yes, there were seven real churches, but those seven real churches are, are kind of standing as representative of the entire church. What we, what we see going on in these seven churches are things that all churches are going to have to deal with in one way or another. Again, it's seven is a sign of completeness or fullness. And so we think about these seven churches, uh, the seven lampstands. He, look at verse 20, mm-hmm. sometimes, now here's the thing, sometimes John is going to tell us what he means by what he says. And if he tells us what he means by what he says, we need to give very close attention to that. Um, like verse 20, because he, you know, he has this vision of Jesus. He's got the, you know, he's in the midst of these seven lampstands. He's got seven stars in his hand. Verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John completely tells us what he means mm-hmm. by the, the symbols in this case. Now, later on and get to chapter 11, and we're going to look at this later more in depth, He's going to talk about the, the two witnesses who are the two olive trees, the two lampstands in the presence of the earth. Well, has John told us what he means by lampstands? Yes, he did right here in chapter one. So when we get to chapter 11, John's already given us the interpretive key to understanding what he means by lampstands. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lampstands are churches. And so you get to chapter 11, you've got the two faithful witnesses who are two lampstands. He's talking about um, the two, two, you know, uh, Old Testament, you gotta have at least two witnesses to confirm a testimony. You've got two faithful churches, a remnant, um, who are faithfully witnessing the word of God. And so again, let revelation at times give us the interpretive clue uh, that we need. So you've got seven lampstands, seven stars. All right, I wanna, I wanna move ahead yeah. to um, chapter, chapter five. Okay, this is, this is one of the places when we talk about the importance of the symbolism um, and the, the chronology issue. We're going to talk more about recapitulation um, after we get through a lot of the symbolism, but this is very important here. Sometimes Revelation is going to look at the same reality, the same individual from different, almost seem like competing perspectives. And the two perspectives that you get, you can't blend the two. Like if you try to bring them together, you get something that's horrible and, and freaky and messed up and it doesn't work, okay? So look at John here. Uh, we've had the, the, the scene of God on his throne in heaven. Um, and then chapter five, verse one, I saw on the right hand of him who's seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed was set against seven seals. Notice that, saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who's worthy to open the scroll, break its seals. No one heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open it or look into it. John's weeping because no one's worthy. And then verse five. And notice what happens here with verse five and verse six. One of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here's the image: John hasn't seen anything yet, but he's been told, "Hey, listen, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Root of David, is conquered." And so we think lion, we think you know the Root of David, we think a warrior, we think a strong lion conquering its prey. And so John looks to see this conquering lion, and what does he see? Verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw same individual, same reality. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And let's just stop there, okay? Two different symbols, two different pictures of the same individual, You've got one looking at it from the Old Testament anticipation, the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to come, the root of David who's going to rule. How did he do that? Verse 6 tells you how he actually did it, as the lamb who died and rose again. Look, notice, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It looks like it had been killed, but it's alive again. What's that referring to? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And so the reason why that matters is, is, is Jesus the lion or is he the lamb? Yes, He's both at the same time, but you don't blend those two. They're two different ways of looking at Him in who He is and what He did for us and our salvation. And just to state the obvious,
0: neither one is literal, right? Obviously, Jesus is not literally a lion. He's not literally a lamb, but the lion brings out His divine reigning, ruling, kingly aspects. Mm -hmm. The lamb brings out His self-sacrificial aspect. They're both symbolic pictures that represent literal truth about who Jesus is. So symbolism isn't liberalism here. We're we're taking the Bible absolutely is what it's saying, but the the symbols are meant to tell us real things about the real Jesus. He's both a reigning king, but he also triumphs on the cross with King of the Jews written over his head as he dies as a sacrificial lamb. It's this irony of power and weakness together, which you can't draw a picture of a lion-like lamb. But but he is both at the same time.
1: Yeah. And so this kind of leads into, I think I said this already, but don't don't try to push these things so close together that you can't make sense of it. Um, sometimes the, the pictures are, aren't going to, to mesh, and that's okay when you're reading Apocalyptic, all right? Don't, don't think you have to somehow harmonize, well, how can he be, like, it, it, he's both. He's both at the same time. Um, Revelation is filled with that. Yeah. Let, let, let
0: me, okay, so our time is limited here, but I, I wanna get to one more big point. So look with me at chapter, at the very end of chapter 6. And we'll come back to this, just here's what we'll argue. We we, we will argue that chapter six covers all of church history. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is something that happens throughout all of church history. And then the world comes to an end in verse 14 of chapter 6. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's from the Olivet Discourse. Yes. Does that sound like the end of the world, though? Does that sound like the end of the world? The world ends right there. Jesus is coming back, the wrath of the Lamb. They're calling for the mountains to hide them. The the, the earth and sky are vanishing away. That's the end of history. So chapter 6 covers all of church history up until the second coming of Christ. The Lamb is returning as as a triumphant king. But then the question is, the last part of the chapter ends with a question, who can stand? Who can endure the day of the wrath of the Lamb? And chapter 7 pauses church history and says, I'll tell you who can stand, the 144,000. And then he he explains it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. So we're now, we're in a different place chronologically. we jumped back in time. That no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm on the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead." And I heard, every, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. And he mentions Judah, Reuben, all the tribes. And then, now, now look at this. Verse 3, an angel is telling John this. Just like you said with the lamb. Remember, he hears about a lion, remember, and he turns and sees what? A lamb, right? He hears about a lion, he turns and sees a lamb. Here in verse 3, he's hearing about 144,000 of Israel… And he turns and sees, in verse 9, the church. This is a clue that the church is the true Israel. Look at verse… So, verse 3, he hears from the angel. He's saying, the angel's saying, there's 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And then verse 9, he turns to look. And you're expecting him to see 144,000 Jews, but he doesn't. He sees the whole church from every tribe. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." So the question at the end of chapter 6 was who can stand. In verse 9, we're told who can stand, who's standing. An innumerable multitude from all nations who are what? They are the 144,000. The church is the true Israel. They are 12 times 12 times 1,000. Twelve. Uh, Tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament multiplied against each other times a thousand, the number of fullness. He hears about 144,000 from Israel. He turns and sees that group, and it's an innumerable group of people from every tribe who is the church of the living God. And they're the ones who can stand. So again, it's symbolic language. Who are the true sons of Abraham? You and I are. We are Israel in Christ. Uh, And so that, I think, is the, the argument here. Let me, let me give one more part to this before we wrap up. Look at chapter 14. Because the 144,000 reappear in chapter 14. And I want to say this not mean-spiritedly. I want to say this, though, to provoke you to think if you're not so convinced at this point, which I understand if you're thinking about this. If you want to take the more literal view that the 144,000 are literal Israelites, let me me suggest that there's a problem with the literal interpretation. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 and the following. Try to take this strictly literally and see if it makes any sense. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So is the name literally on their forehead? And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these, let's take this literally, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. So literally all 144,000 Jews are unmarried single men who are virgins? Are we going to take this literally? Virginity is symbolic language for spiritual purity. Taking this symbolically makes way more sense than taking this strictly literally. Are you telling me the 144,000 are Jewish men who've never been married, have are, they're all virgins and they've got the name of God tattooed on their forehead? This is symbolic language. It's referring to the full church of God, all the true sons of Abraham who are spiritually virgins. They are are spiritually pure to Christ. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, I wanted you to be a pure virgin for your your husband Christ. It's symbolic language. The name on the forehead is referring to our whole mind and heart and emotion being devoted to God. His name is on our head. It's like saying our whole mind is given to God. And then keep going, verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and, their, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Are we to believe that not one of them has ever said anything in their life untrue? No, it's speaking symbolically here of saying that their life has been given to God. They've been, they've been changed and converted. All right, for the sake of time, we will pick this up. Uh, there's a lot more to cover on the symbolism. We'll pick this up, Lord willing, next Sunday. Papa Fred, can you close us in prayer? There's just a whole lot to think Amen. about here. Amen.
2: Father, the revelation uh, begins uh, with the uh, statement that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are the, those that hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Lord, uh, it, it's, it's exciting just to, uh, to hear uh, what you have in store for your church, uh, for, have in store for your saints. And yes, we're going to go through tribulation. Yes, we're going to go through trial. But in the end, you do prevail. You've given us uh, uh, an intermission in Daniel and also in, in multiple times in, in Revelation where you, you illustrate the, th- the throne room of God. You illustrate the Son of Man, the, the Messiah. And, and in the end, Father, you're going to redeem your people that's what these 144,000 are the great multitudes all about even though we're going through a time of uh, trial uh, trouble very much like the book of Daniel so thank you lord for uh, this uh, time uh, pray for our service pray for the preaching and the teaching and the and the singing and the prayers in jesus name amen amen